May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Fuja Singh was born in the uh, Punjab province of northeastern India, very close to the Pakistan border. And when he was born, he had this congenital defect. He had weakness in his legs. His legs were so weak that he was not able to walk until he was five years old. His doctors had prescribed uh, these uh, exercises to strengthen his legs, and by the time he was five, he was taking his, his very first steps. But it would be another five years before he would ever be able to really walk with any sense of normalcy, and even a little bit longer before he could run and play with other children. He says about the time he was ten that he was living a, a relatively normal life. He decided as he grew up to stay and live in the same small village in northeastern India where he was born and raised. And, um, and he met a woman there, and they got married, and they had children, and they began to grow old together. And when he was about 80 years old, his wife passed away, and he was crushed. He felt devastated by this loss, and a few years later, his son passed away, and he felt like he couldn't go on. And so as an act of therapy, something he did therapeutically, he began at 89 years old to run. He ran a 5K, and then he ran a 10K, and then he ran a 20K at 89 years old. And he says he didn't know the difference between kilometers and miles, and so he thought, well, if I ran a 20K, a marathon's only 26 miles, I should just go ahead and run a marathon, even though he was off by about 13.7 miles in that total distance. At 89 years old, Falja Singh ran a marathon, and he kept running them. And a few years later, in 2003, he ran the Toronto Waterfront Marathon at the age of 92, and he ran it in 5 hours and 40 minutes at 92 years old, and he kept running. And a few years later, eight years later, he makes his way back to Toronto, the first centenarian to ever run a marathon. It took him a little longer. It took him about eight hours to run at that time. But at 100 years old, he ran a marathon in eight hours. If you've ever seen him, he has this big gray beard, and he has a turban, you know. They call him the turban tornado, you know, and... He's even been in a Nike commercial, you know, because this guy has become so famous. At 100 years old, he decided maybe it was time to retire running. Or maybe he was 102. Today, as 104 years old, he lives in London. He says he still walks three hours every day. He does all his own chores, lives independently. This boy who was born with really weak legs, so weak that he could even walk until he was five years old, at 100 years old, runs a marathon. I guess it's not so important how you start, it's how you finish. But Falja's story about running a marathon isn't the only marathon stories you've ever heard, is it? In fact, um, I read several this week. Uh, a lot of people think about running a marathon, and they plan to run a marathon. And they anticipate the joy of finishing a marathon, and, and all that sort of stuff. And on the day of the marathon, they're really excited and stoked about it. And something comes up that they hadn't planned on. Um, Nathan Pennington, I, wrote, I read uh, his blog about his first marathon. He says um, he was doing really well until about the 20th mile. 
and he suddenly had this massive dehydration. His legs began to cripple. It wasn't that he you know, wanted to keep going. and He just simply could not. And he fell to the ground and he tried. He drank a bunch of water. He, he waited, he waited. He thought, you know, I just want to finish. I don't care how long. And, and eventually he had to concede that there was no way that he could finish the race. He had to, to remove himself from it. He says he learned two things. The one is that your body needs water. <laughs> you need water in your body, especially if you're going to run a marathon. And the second is your body needs fuel. That it needs food to go on. I read another blog, a young woman named Dory, who ran in the New York City Marathon. And she had practiced and trained and was ready. And then on the day of the marathon, there's this, as she's running, I think she says around the 11th or 12th mile, she had this gas bubble in her esophagus that she couldn't clear. And it began to cause this crippling pain. And she just thought, you know, sooner or later it's going to, you know, come out of there like a burp, but I'll just keep on going. But she couldn't. It wouldn't, it wouldn't come out. And then her shirt began to rub underneath her arm. The same shirt she wore to train in. She thought, I'm going to wear everything the same as what I trained in so that I won't have it. And it began to rub underneath her arm until it was raw and bleeding. And she had, here's what she says. My goals changed a few times during this marathon. When I started the race, my goal was to finish in less than five hours. When the esophageal pain became so bad I had to slow down, my goal was to finish. And when I entered Manhattan, my goal was to make it to 95th Street. And that's where she made it, to 95th Street, the 18th mile of the marathon, where her boyfriend and her friends were gathered, and there she had to quit, and she was crushed. She so wanted to finish that marathon and was unable to do it. There are, of course, worse things than not finishing a marathon. You know, not starting one might be out there, right? You know, there are a lot of things that are worse than that. And I think that it, whoever has ran a marathon and not finished their first time or whenever, they learned a lot of lessons that they would have never learned any other way. But no one starts out to run 18, 20, or 26 even miles. They want to run 26.2. I have friends who have run marathons, and they always tell me the same thing. Anybody can run 26. is the last point two that kill you. I don't believe them. I don't think anybody can run 26. I feel like that, that's probably a, a feat too great for me. But no one lines up next to the guy with the starter pistol and thinks, you know, I'm going for 18. I'm going for 22. They line up there thinking, I want to do this. I want to finish this thing. I want to do it in good time. I want, I want, to, I want to finish a marathon. The Gospel lesson today is about the end of the life of a man called John the Baptist. John was a preacher in ancient Israel. He was a fiery preacher. He was a preacher even before Jesus showed up on the scene preaching. John was your, um, he was your hellfire and brimstone preacher. He was black and white. There were no 50 shades of gray with him. There was not even a single shade of gray with, with John. It was all black and white. And his sermons were always the same. Repent. Stop doing evil. Turn and do good. Give up on sin. Embrace righteousness. God expects holiness of you. So embrace that. This is the way people are to live. And he was sold out to this career. He gave up all his possessions. He, he wore animal skins for clothes, ate off the land, bugs and wild honey. He lived in a cave. No one could say that John was in it for the money. He was totally sold out. What's more, he was fearless. 
He was fearless. He would, he would say things to people that would get most people into serious trouble. For instance, the king. The king had divorced his wife in order to marry his sister-in-law. He'd convinced his sister-in-law to divorce her husband, and they were living together as a couple. They'd, they'd get married. And John saw this, and he said they were living in adultery. Who says that to the king? What kind of preacher would have the audacity to say that God can define marriage and only... I mean, what kind of person could say that? And John does it. He says it to the king. Now, um, you got to know that, uh, that Herod's wife, her name was Herodias, she hated John for this. Hated him. Uh, Mark says she wanted him dead. She tried to convince her husband to have him killed. But Herod would have none of it. He wouldn't, he would, this is the one thing he refused her. And it wasn't because he was pious. Because he wasn't. He was a thug. He, um, he was a chip off the old block. His father was a thug and he was, he was just as bad. He didn't do this because he was a religious person at all, but there was something about John. He would hear him preach and it would be, it'd be like a dagger to him. He knew that what John was saying was the truth, and yet there was something that captured his imagination. Something about the way that John preached and what he said, no matter, even if it was, even if it was pointed towards Herod, he still wanted to hear it. Let me, let me refresh you what the, what the lesson says in verse 19. And Herodias, that's the wife of Herod, had a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he protected him. Now listen to this. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet, he liked to listen to him. He was greatly perplexed. John's preaching was painful. And yet hopeful. It was, it was like a dagger, and yet like it had some sort of healing medicine to it as well. He was perplexed. Uh, with much difficulty is another way to translate this word. With much difficulty, Herod would listen to John's preaching. Uh, Eugene Peterson does it this way. Um, whenever Herod listened to John, he was miserable with guilt. And yet he couldn't stay away. John was calling Herod out, calling him by name. He was pointing it out publicly. Herodias' wife, was she was incensed about this and wanted to kill John. And yet, what does Herod do? He kept John safe. He protected him. Why? Why did Herod protect John? Mark tells us. Did you hear it? Because he knew that John was righteous and holy. He knew. He didn't surmise. He didn't think. He didn't speculate. He knew that John was righteous and holy. He knew what holiness looked like. He knew what righteousness looked like. He knew that he was not the picture of that, but he knew John was. He knew John was a godly man. And then there was a party. So it always happens, isn't it? And there was a party. He throws a party. Who throws their own party? He does. Herod throws his own party. He throws a party for himself. All of his powerful allies are there. He doesn't have friends. People in Herod's place don't have friends. They have allies, right? And so he brings all of his allies together. And they were uh, like people who worked for Herod. You know, his yes men. His, uh, his little council. 
Um, he, he brings in the militia leaders, the people who are like the hired thugs who sort of do what he needs done. Um, he brings in the rich people from Galilee. And there's, um, there's food and there's drink and there's jokes and there's laughter and there's wine. There's too much wine, you know, and things are going really well. And all the women are escorted out to the ladies' tea downstairs. It's always downstairs. The ladies are, or at least of the, they go out of the room and they're going down to the ladies' tea and, and the band starts playing a pretty sultry number. Just the men in the room and the band members and a young woman comes in, 18, 19 years old. She's all dressed in veils. And she starts dancing a very seductive dance. The men start doing the cat calls and the whistles and all that sort of stuff. And, and she doesn't seem to mind. In fact, she rather seems to like it. She starts peeling off these veils one by one. And the place is going crazy. Hopefully the women's tea is far enough away that they're not hearing this. And Herod does something really stupid. At the end of the dance, he yells out, Listen here, sweetheart. Whatever you want, just name your price. I'll pay it. He keeps saying this over and over again. Apparently he's had way too much wine. He just keeps repeating it over and over again. I swear it. Whatever you want, it's yours. And she excuses herself and goes down to the ladies' tea and says, Mother, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist. I wish you would look at this because it's really interesting. When, when she goes back, when, her, when the daughter, Salome is her name, doesn't mention it here. When she goes back, she doesn't just say, I want the head of John the Baptist. Do you hear what she said? I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This girl's violent, right? She, she wants the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Listen to this, verse 26. And the king was deeply grieved, struck to the heart, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he did not refuse her. Pride. Oh my. He's dug himself a deep hole and there's no way out. He can't, he can't walk away from this. He can't say, you know, come on, that's too much. What will all the men think? He's got to go along with this. He made a promise. He's got to deliver. And he sends the executioner. They must have been right there. You know, the prison was on this grounds, I think. And they send the executioner, cut off the head of the Baptist, put it on a plate, and he brings it to the young girl, and she takes it to her, father, to her mother. Herod is in a place to make a choice, and he makes the wrong one. He murders one of the most holy and righteous people of all time. Now, I don't know if you know this, but someone signed your name on a sign-up sheet for a marathon. They signed me up, too. I mean, I don't know. It happened. You know that you were signed up to run a marathon. Some of you are starting to squirm. You're like, I didn't do this, and I'm not doing it. You are. You have to. See, from our mother's womb, we've been running a race, haven't we? It's longer than 26.2 miles for most of us. It's our whole life. And it matters how we run it. And how we finish. Um, 
I thought about the way that this uh, one runner who didn't, uh, he didn't complete his race, how he talked about some things that he learned. And, and it occurs to me that runners know that you have to prepare. You know that every runner prepares. They, they, they think about what they eat, you know, a long time before the day of the race. And, and, and they think about what they drink and, and how much sleep they get. And, and they're totally prepared. I mean, they're, they're totally zoned in on preparation. And I think that living the gospel is a lot like that as well. You know that hearing the gospel is not living the gospel, right? I mean, we have made that distinction in our minds that that hearing the gospel is not the same thing as living the gospel. And we have to hear it as part of the preparation, but we also have to have a gospel ethos, a habit, a way of living that prepares us for running it. And then secondly, it matters how we run. Understanding the gospel is not the same as living it. Herod knew what the God, he knew righteousness and holiness, didn't he? He knew that John was righteous and holy, and yet he himself refused to live that way. Runners have to pay attention, but runners have to run, you know? It's no sense in saying, you know, I, I know a lot. I've read books about what it takes to run a marathon. You know, I'm telling you. Here's what you do at mile 18.7. You know, you can you can know all you want to know about. It doesn't matter until you run it. And finishing a race, well, it depends on the first two, doesn't it? How you prepare and how you run. But there is some good news this morning. The good news is this. It's not about our resources. It's not about how strong we are as to how we run or if we finish. Because everything we need, your body needs water, it needs fuel to run, everything we need is available to us. We have the Word and the sacraments and the prayers. We have God's own Holy Spirit that comes to us, meets us here in this moment transforms us, changes us, makes us into Christ's own image. So that when we run, it's not us that runs, it's it's Christ who runs within us. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But we have to want it. We have to engage in it. We We have to run this race. We're all in this race. There is There is no saying, I don't want to do it. You're in it. Your mother and your father signed you up. You're stuck, just like I am. It matters how we run, and it matters how we finish. It matters how we run, and it matters how we finish. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.